Hello and welcome to episode number 248 of the Armin Show podcast. I am here with Dr. Nicholas P. Money of Miami University in Ohio, author of The Selfish Ape. Welcome to the show. I'm good to talk with you, Armin. This is a wonderful About thing. A potentially excessively dispiriting subject, namely our coming extinction. This is true. For all people, 7.8 billion, whatever it <clears> is, <throat> it could be a heavy thing. Now, this book is different from your previous books. I looked at your previous books a lot, focused on mycology, microbial universes, and not so much human nature and people specifically. What caused the transition to this broader category than specific yeah, that's mushrooms? A, that's an interesting question because I spent a good 30 years of my, the bulk of my adult life, I suppose, to this point studying fungal biology and most of the books, the previous books that I've written have, have dealt with different aspects of fungal diversity and fungal biology. And I suppose in a sense, this is, a, this is an example of a, of a late midlife crisis, perhaps. <clears throat> I describe myself to students now as a recovering mycologist. You know, I've studied the fungi for so long, but it finally occurred to me that maybe I should think about what I've learned about myself and our species from studying this other kingdom of organisms for so long. And it really was a, a passion and an obsession for me beginning um, as an undergraduate many years ago and then studying the fungi. But I do find myself now drawn to these wider questions, wider biological questions, and also questions in I suppose more philosophical, even theological questions, maybe at uh, at the age of fifty-seven. <clears throat> when I think of fifty-seven, I think of nineteen times three as the first thing that comes to mind. Long live <laughs> math. Now, one thing that I always like to focus on is we always go into a certain category for something that matches our personality, or we like it because of something we saw early on in life. What led you into specifically fungal studies? That's, that's, that's really interesting. I, I think I've, um, it's been pointed out to me often that I am somewhat nihilistic in my, my outlook. If it's possible to be a, a, a what, a positive nihilist, mm -hmm. nihilist, I think so. Um, so it, it, I have had students that have said that there's, there's some irony perhaps in, in somebody becoming an expert on fungal biology, organisms associated with with, with decomposition. Mm -hmm. And so the, the process of, of, I suppose, with, with processes of death and decomposition, and then having this sort of rather, um, rather bleak outlook on things about the, the, the path that, that we're on. But maybe there is some possibility of grace then that comes from that, uh, that recognition, and we can talk about that. But in terms of the, the real sort of roots of this, I, I was very fortunate um, with um, my maternal grandmother would take my sister and I um, into the woods really on every, every opportunity that presented itself and, and uh, introduced me to the natural world as a young child in, um, as a child in, in England. And so I think probably that's where this, this interest in, in, in forests began. And then the, the fungi didn't really make much sense to me, but I was aware that they were, they were there. And my, again, my grandmother, um, Kate would point out these beautiful fruit bodies. And so, yeah, I, th I think it, it took hold 
early early in my life, which, which seems to be a pretty common experience for biologists and other sort of natural historians that there's some kind of mentor, an adult in their lives that uh, introduces them to the splendors of nature. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing that comes to mind is there were some songs when I heard them, for example, 20 years ago, I liked them a lot. And I thought, wow, this is a really nice moment that they came out. And now 20 years later, I still like those songs. And then you think back to the first time you heard them, how cool that was, like you identify with them. You didn't know you'd be listening to them 20 years later. If you saw some mushrooms early on, did you have a sense like, wait, I like these more than other things I've seen, like trees or something? I'm not, I'm not sure that that's the case. I found them, found them strange in the sense that most well, my grandmother, I suppose, and other adults didn't know much about them. They were, they were mysterious in that sense that they weren't. They, they clearly weren't plants. They weren't animals. But what are these organisms? And then when I when I did uh, go to university in England, um, one of the first professors that I had was a mycologist, and he began to explain uh, how the fungi work, and and that was really uh, transformative, I think, for me. Mm -hmm. recognizing that these were a distinctive part of nature and that there was so much to learn about them. <clears throat> One thing before I go more into the human level material, but related to it, what are some characteristics of fungi that we should take note of as people or that we do as people or similar paths that we are both following? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I think there's this there's this tendency among popularizers of of mycology of fungal biology to to speak about the strangeness of fungi and almost to suggest that they um, they step outside from the the, the normal bounds of, of biological behavior. And I th I think these ideas are rooted in sort of much earlier superstitions related to hallucinogenic and poisonous mushrooms and this is this has been carried into the 21st century again with some of these popularizers that suggest that that, that mushrooms can save the planet that um that what that medicinal mushrooms can cure our ills there's there's very little basis for any of this in in science um i think what's interested me more in my career is really understanding the way in which the fungi have um, come up with unique solutions to common challenges, the common challenges in biology. H how do I move? How do I, how do I move around? Being anthropomorphic here, but the fungus says, how am I gonna, how am I gonna get dispersed? How am I going to move away from the parent colony? How am I going to feed? How am I going to reproduce? I mean, these are, how will I deal with predators? How will I deal with pests? It's, it's some, um, these are questions that face, challenges that face every living organism. The fungi have unique, come up with unique solutions, beautiful um, examples of evolutionary engineering to actually answer these these challenges. But I mean, you could you could do, you could apply the same thing to if I if I'd become a jellyfish fish expert, I'm pretty confident that there's very interesting ways in which jellyfish have have solved exactly the same same problems. At the revolution, where you have to adapt and only those that adapt continue and the other ones, they're out. One thing I noted was that you have pioneered high-speed video microscopy to see the explosive mechanisms used by fungi to launch spores into the air. 
how did you produce that or did you team up with like video production experts or how does that work yeah that was that was really interesting i had a, a colleague um a younger mycologist her name's ann pringle she's now at the university of wisconsin and she actually contacted me this is a good number of years ago now when she was a postdoc and um, she was, she'd become, she was more alert to the technological innovations that had happened within high speed video than I was at the time. And so that was actually how it began was with teaming up with her. And, and that was a really, really exciting period in, in research. So about, about a little more than 10, 10 years ago now, when suddenly these cameras were, they sort of became affordable enough at least to rent these, these cameras capable of um, capturing a you know, million frames of information a second. And <clears throat> so what I recognized was there were all of these longstanding questions about fungal movements that um, had been researched by earlier generations of researchers, but nobody had been able to, to see what was happening just because there was no way of slowing down these incredibly fast spore launches, for, for example. And so that, that was really a, a very exciting period during my research career of of really seeing the way that things worked for the really well not really for the first time there have been these very clever inferences made about the way that fungi would uh, uh, shoot their spores into the air through these these explosive jets pressurized jets of fluid and then but we were actually able to slow this down using high-speed video technology and actually see frame by frame what was what was happening and that that's still um, I still find that inspiring, you know, actually looking at things. This is what's happening during one microsecond and then a millionth of a second later, the, the structure that we're looking at has moved this far. I mean, it, it's really, it, it is um, utterly beautiful. <clears throat> it's a nice thing to see. When I read that the first time, I thought of there's some popular YouTube channels that they slow down everything and they'll like chop through a watermelon or whatever, and then they'll slow yeah, it down. Yeah. And that wasn't well, it's so straightforward now, but I mean, at, at the time then, so we were right. doing the first work that we published was about 2006. And then, um, but, but at that time it was, um, uh, nobody had been able to do this in a routine fashion. Now, of course, you can use a cell phone to get some high speed, interesting high speed footage of things like insect uh, movements, for example. And uh, I, I guess with the iPhone now, you can, you can actually get some useful images of hummingbirds hovering and so, so forth. But, you know, at, at the time we were doing this, this was, this was cutting edge. I know there's one theme across the book that relates to the individual who is on the front of the book, who I think of as like one of the, the forefront of science in the evolutionary category, Richard Dawkins. And I noticed that theme across your book where you talk about a feature that an organism took into account, how that kept it going, and then the traits that they ended an evolutionary tree and didn't continue forward. Uh, how long have you, how, have you always looked at organisms and their path in this way? How early did you look at evolutionary adaptation? Um, well, I was, um, I mean, I read as a, as a high school, high school student, I suppose, 1976, 77. I mean, I read Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene back, back then, and I, I can't claim to have understood it all at that at that stage in my my education but i was fascinated with this and i, I found it um over time as my understanding of evolutionary theory um deepened it it, it became a just a, a 
an enthralling and totally compelling way of looking at nature. So I've, I've never left that. I mean, I don't think it, before then, it's not like I had any, any space for, um, for what? Any space for, for, for a God. There was no really God of the gaps for me, but it was very nice to, I think, find, find in Richard Dawkins, a writer of such, such brilliance that he could really explain. It seemed to me that he, he explained life, the universe and every, everything, at least as a teenage reader. Yeah. That's, and I'm not sure I've changed my opinion. I mean, there, there are certainly, we, we understand a lot more than we did in 1976, but he, he, Richard Dawkins got an awful lot right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's still basically one of my favorite books in the science category from the beginning. Yeah. I liked it a lot. Now, one thing I liked in the chapter related to food and how it starts, because a lot of your studies is microbial, small scale. And then you talk about how food starts with entropy and ends with sugar. Can you describe that transition and how uh, we need other organisms and they are way more advanced than we might be? So I suppose, uh, where, where, where do we start with that? I mean, there, there, are, there are theists that would claim, and you'll still see this online, this claim that in some way life according to evolutionary principles, life according to biological principles is impossible because in some way it steps outside of the second law of thermodynamics, right? So everything, which, which means everything goes to shit, right? In, in the universe. And then here, here am I, something as glorious as this, this member of Homo sapiens. How can this be? There has to be some, some uh, supernatural explanation for such uh, magnificence. But um, the, the, the what? The essential answer to that question is is that we, we have to look at the, the larger system and that we can see that the the order that we find in in nature is paid for by disorder elsewhere and we can thermodynamically we can think about temperature but um i'm not going to go there now but but in, to answer your question specifically then yeah we've got uh, the um uh, the the reactions within the sun then the the uh, hydrogen atoms fusing to form helium and energy being released from the sun photons finally escaping probably after hundreds of years from from uh, deep up uh, within within the sun and uh, those photons then some of them are captured by plants and photosynthetic bacteria and through the the wonders of photosynthesis then um, plants at least are using that uh, that energy to capture carbon dioxide and incorporate the carbon atoms in carbon dioxide into sugars and other biological molecules and and that's the source of the fuel that that keeps us going every every second every microsecond of our of our lives so i, I suppose i like thinking about things in those in, in that case we're looking at, at uh, cosmic terms terms there but things things do do make sense i mean the the the, the wonder of all wonders is and the question of all questions is how life got started in the first place. And that, that's, that's a, there's a huge gap there in understanding how order did emerge and how we, we moved how, 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 what, how planet earth transitioned from chemistry to biology. I mean, there's a whole series of interlinked, wonderfully complicated questions that have not been, been solved, but in broad terms, we know why we're here and how mm -hmm. we got here. We just don't know that. We just don't know about the beginning, that first cell. You know, by the way, also, I think it was a week or two ago that 
the first pictures, the really detailed pictures of the sun with its plasma came out and it looked really cool. And then that's yes. the source of our, I found that being a biologist, I haven't spent much time looking through telescopes, but I did actually get a home telescope as a birthday present some years, years ago, and I've got a solar filter on that. And from time to time, I'll actually look at the sun and I find it, I don't know, enthralling and terrifying at the same time, not with the detail, of course, that was, um, was uh, um, uh, discussed in these news reports, but it, yeah, there's just, it's, I, I don't have the words at the moment to express it, but there's a lot going on there, isn't there? On the surface of the sun. It makes us look so small. And then Under, understatement of the year. There's an awful, awful lot going on the, on the, on the surface. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> there are some reactions occurring there. Yes, there's, there's something useful going on there. Well done. <laughs> I've, I've covered it all now. That's kind of cool. <laughs> one thing I noted that you mentioned, and one thing I really liked about chapters, I always look at chapter details or subheadings or different things. The G concept, where every chapter is with a G, globe, genesis, guts, genes, that's a wonderful thing because it connects them all. And it was a way of going from uh, the original to humanity in a way. But yeah. in your uh, second chapter, you talk about how we are more similar to fungi than to plants or any major groupings of life. How is that the case? Yeah, so we've, we have known this now for quite, quite a while through uh, molecular phylogenetic studies. So if we, if we compare the degrees of similarity and difference between organisms based upon their individual genes, and I mean, now we can do this sort of at the genomic level, but there's been evidence now for, for oh, since the 1980s, really, that um, the, the fungi and the animals share a more recent common ancestor than the fungi with the plants or the, the animals with plants. Does that make sense? We're more closely related to fungi than we are to, to plants. Now that ancestor, that common ancestor would have existed a, bit, a billion years ago, plus or minus a few weeks. You know, we've got, there is a, there is a big plus or minus there, but that, that's how, how we look at this relationship is that a long time ago, hundreds of millions of years ago, probably a billion years ago, there was a common ancestor from which then the fungal kingdom and the animals emerged. And it's, it's interesting that, um, and I, I think, I think um, there would probably be many people that would, un unfamiliar with the science, that would be, we be, be impressed by that, interested, thinking that fungi were really plants, plant-like. I mean, that was the way that they were seen for, the way that they were viewed by scientists, for example, in the 18th and 19th centuries, I suppose. Um, so there's this genetic similarity, but there's also similarity, and that genetic similarity is expressed too structurally um, in that if we think about cells with cilia, mm -hmm. and there are aquatic fungi that live in ponds and lakes and so forth, and they have swimming cells called zoospores that look a little bit like an animal sperm cell, but they've got a tail that pushes them through, through the water, and so it's a posterior tail, a posterior flagellum that pushes the cell through through fluid. We see the same thing, of course, with a with a uh, an animal sperm cell. Um, that's the only place in nature where we see that structure, which is really interesting. There's a lots of lots of other ways of arranging cilia, and when there's one cilium, we tend to call it a flagellum. There are other other kinds of cells, single cell microbes that swim through through water but they might have they might be decorated with 
cilia over their entire surface, or maybe they've got one pointing forward that kind of drags the cell th through the water. But the only place that we see that particular signature of the posterior flagellum is within the animals and fungi. And that structural signature was actually recognized before any of the molecular work was done. I think the person that did that, that was his name's um, Thomas Cavalier Smith recognized this. And this was back in the 19, early 1980s, I, I believe, and was based on just looking at this and saying, yeah, probably the fungi and the animals have this, this sisterhood, this, this alliance, which I, it's a, it a pretty smart insight. Well done. <laughs> I heard him speak many, many years, years ago, but anyway, it's, it's, it's pretty good before, before the genetic data supported it. And then also we see that the, the fact that we're, we're ciliated too, because um, it's not just sperm cells. We see, I mean, most cells are ciliated um, in, in, in the human, human body, even if they don't have an active waggling cilium, but we've also got active waggling cilia in, in our respiratory tract. And I, coughing a little here today in our nasal passages in our um, in our nervous system brain ventricles and so so forth fallopian tubes if you have them that that we've we've um, ciliated structures are ev everywhere and um, there's very interesting work too in biomedical research and looking at human diseases including different forms of cancer that that may well have defective cilia at their uh, uh, as their foundation absolutely fa fascinating so you go back a billion years this this structure evolves and then it's carried through today and perhaps in some pretty serious ailments that uh, we develop mm -hmm. <clears throat> i like that portion when you were discussing it the one where it had tail but also it had a i think a middle portion where it served like two purposes where it was for movement and also processing through it like a double purpose oh, yeah so so yeah so a very very simple if if we if we go back it's, it's actually outside the animal kingdom but so the colanoflagellates these these colored flagellates yeah so they're they're um they also have that structure then this this um single flagellum and they'll they'll use it both for movement and for feeding and and depending on the species that we're looking at some use it more for movement and feeding and vice versa but um yeah, very, very interesting. I think it's kind of cool when it's like a multiple features. It kind of reminds me of also when talking about, I think it was birds. Like if you created things from scratch, as we do with like an airplane, we go for the most efficient thing, but evolution might go to step A and then later step B works. And so step B came from step A, which we wouldn't have normally done if we were building it from scratch. But then the feathers that were for warmth are now for flying or something like that. This nice combo you can see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see this throughout nature that it, it doesn't. Uh, um, it's not. It's not the obvious linear path that we first think about. I mean, that's certainly the case, isn't it? With the with the evolution of feathers, it was, you know, like that, with the recognition that so many of the uh, dinosaurs were feathered, even though these were flightless animals. Yeah, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Now, in the chapter on guts, I read one book called. <clears throat> Pleased to meet me by Bill Sullivan. He studies a lot of gut bacteria and things like that, which I find quite interesting. Uh, and you mentioned there's so much digestive area in the gut, 30 square meters, which is huge. What kind of, uh, have you done any research on microbes in the gut or what might exist in there and how it's important to us? 
I mean, I've been I've all I've been interested in research on the human microbiome for for a, a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. as as this has developed, um, I'm interested. I from my own uh, sort of my own interest in the fungi. I am I am interested in the the organisms other than bacteria and archaea that are in the human gut and actually what they're doing. And the, there's still some controversy there. Um, it's possible that a lot of those fungi are, are not doing anything particularly useful, that they're passing through the gut, that they're present on the, the foods that we eat and so forth. And this might be the case, but there's probably also some fungi that play an important and poorly understood role in, in, in our digestive system. Yeah. Different kinds of yeast, for example, that, that are there, that are you know, every, every stool sample that you look at, you'll find these organisms. So they're probably doing something. <clears throat> we talked later about in the genes chapter about enzymes and how they have been formed like almost perfectly over time to speed up reactions a million fold or whatever it might be. Are there any similar enzymes between us and fungi or are there any, are there any specific enzymes you have looked at and uh, studied? Well, I mean, there's one of the, one of the, one of the um, important uh, I mean, we, we don't possess any, any cellulases, right? We, 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 can't, we can't digest the cellulose, right. the um, you know, fi fiber in our, in our diet because we lack these, these enzymes. But the, the fungi are excessively capable at breaking down cellulose. I mean, if you look at a, think about a, a shelf fungus that's, that's growing from a decaying log, it may well be deriving a lot of its nutrition from breaking down cellulose, but also other large um, uh, other macromolecules that are present in wood, I'm thinking of the lignins. But I mean, cellulose is pure, it's a polymer of glucose. There's a heck of a lot of energy in it, but we can't, we can't break it down at all. It provides, you know, it, it actually uh, grist for the mill, it enables us to move stuff through, through, the, through the gut. So we need to have fiber in our diet, even though we can't use it but uh, can't use it nutritionally can't use it uh, as a source of calories but that that's interesting that the fungi and actually there's there's a lot of interesting work on on looking at the timing of that when was it that the fungi began to develop this capacity to decompose pose wood and were fungi present on the land before perhaps long before there were any woody tissues and the answer is almost certainly yes so that's that's an interesting area of mycological research, looking at the evolution of wood, wood decomposition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then now transitioning to people, and our large scale, what we are doing. Are we destroying the planet? Are we going to make it? What does it look like moving forward as far as heating and or the greenhouse gases? I mean, I I have a. I think, uh, well, I've done the book, the subtitle, you know, our path to extinction. I, I don't think there is, I don't think there is a good path. Um, we've put an extra teraton of, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since the, um, since the middle of the 18th century, since the middle of the you know, beginning of the industrial Re revolution. We've we we've bumped up the carbon dioxide concentration up there by, well, it depends what numbers you look at, but 40, 48% maybe increase. It's a pretty significant increase in in CO2. And the basics of 
of um, the greenhouse effect are, are quite straightforward. And we're seeing the effects of this globally, obviously. And I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I read any good news about the environment. And that, that strikes me. I mean, I think I have a, an ethical responsibility as a, as a professor and working with young students, people who've got you know, decades of many decades of life ahead of them um, in talking with them about, about these issues. But I don't think we do any, uh, I think being Pollyanna-ish is, is, is foolhardy. I think it's probably best to actually look at this, um, the problems that we face very objectively and then think about what our response to these changes will be. But I see the changes, and, and mine is just one, one viewpoint. Be wonderful if I'm completely wrong, but I, I don't think so. I'm obviously an, an atmospheric chemist, but I mean, anecdotally, the changes that I've seen um, in, in Southwestern Ohio, where I've lived for, for 25 years, and again, this is anecdotal, uh, but the changes in insects that I see, I mean, again, going back to my grandmother in the woods, I'm a keen observer of, of wildlife. The changes have been really, really profound in, in the area where I live over that quarter, quarter century. And it's anecdotal. This is just me going out into the garden and into the woods every day and looking at things. But I mean, my observations mesh perfectly with these large scale studies in different parts of the world, looking at insect diversity uh, in terms of, of the different species, also looking at just populations, number of insects. So things are changing. And one has to wonder, what could we do that would actually alter this, this course? What could we do that would change things? And so you can do a thought experiment. We can think that there's, there's a, a young genius out there that's going to come up with some mechanism for mopping up lots and lots of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases really quickly. If we think about that from a biological or, or, or I suppose a social sciences perspective, what, would that, what effect would that have? So we go through a period of planetary cooling because we absorb the carbon dioxide. What it means is that we keep doing what we've been doing for the last many decades, which is to live the lives of, of um, uh, relatively wealthy consumers. And I suppose I'm speaking about myself here and I'm a, I'm a terrible sinner in that department, right? I love stuff, I buy stuff, I'm a consumer. And, I'm, I'm, and in my adopted country of the United States of America, um, I'm a terrible, terrible um, uh, influence on the planet, on the health of the, the planet. And if we, if we cool things, it means that I'll keep doing what I'm doing. And it also means that there'll be more of, a, of us doing what I'm doing or wanting to do what I do. I find it extraordinary that population, human, the human population is not discussed by most of the major figures that opine on climate change. You don't hear this very often. So we're looking at, um, there's, there's, there's lots of very interesting and clever things that are said about climate change at um, these international conferences. But boy, human population isn't mentioned very, very much. And as our numbers grow, the, the, what is it that's going, going to actually change the way, way that we live in terms of our, our um, export of, of the, the, the carbon dioxide from fossil fuels into the, into the atmosphere? I mean, la last year we, we contributed more 
in terms of tons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere than probably any other year in human history. So it's not like things are getting better. We're researching alternative fuels, and that's one of the things that's interested me a lot is actually um, bioethanol production using yeast, which I have written a, a book on yeast called The Rise of Yeast. Um, to cut to the chase here, no, I don't see a lot of, lot of good news. Um, and like, like most biologists, I'm reading about this every day, looking at effects upon ecosystems and, and of climate change, looking at marine resources. Yeah, I, I, th I think the future looks pretty bleak. So the question is, what, what, do, what do I do with that information? Mm -hmm. What do I do with that personally? You know, I look in the mirror in the morning and, and sort of curse myself for my, my terrible behavior. But I, I think what, what I do in the selfish ape is to lay out a, a biological argument about why we've acted in, in this fashion. And to some extent, I think it's, it's, it's inevitable. I mean, that, that's our out here is mm -hmm. we're, we're performing a, according to our biological and evolutionary edicts. And I'm not sure that we could have behaved much better. It's like a... in, in, in the book, I, I, I do a, another thought experiment where I'm thinking about aliens that are watching us, right? An alien, a classroom on, I don't know where it would be. It's up there and they're watching us and they're watching us from Proxima Centauri or something. Of course, they've they got the delay, haven't they? If they're using a really powerful <laughs> telescope, there's a, um, what is it? Uh, Proxima Centauri is four light years away. So they're, they're seeing us in 2016 at the moment. So, but, but, but I think that very smart aliens out there will have, will have studied other Goldilocks planets and actually seen a, a life cycle to each of each of those planets once some species arises that's actually capable of changing the chemistry of the planet mm. changing the chemistry of the planet very very swiftly mm -hmm. clearly there are there have been been periods in in the evolutionary history of of earth where microorganisms have really mm. transformed the chemistry of the planet we can think about the evolution of photosynthetic um, cyanobacteria that are the, that are the source of the the oxygen in the atmosphere but Mm -hmm. um, in any case, those aliens looking at us with their noodly appendages from, from this Goldilocks planet, and um, they say, well, what stage are they at? And, and, I, and I do this thing, I think about all the, the children in the classroom raising their noodly appendages, because they know, they've studied this, it's in their textbooks on cosmology and, um, and um, life, life in the universe, and they can see that what stage we're we're at and I do wonder if that's where we are and therefore there's not much that we're going to do now that's going to put us on a path that will um, enable at least this form of humanity the civilization that we've enjoyed for the at the moment in the 21st century that this isn't sustainable so that's that's not a particularly um, <clears throat> creative viewpoint there's plenty of people that that feel rather bleakly about things what i find extraordinary though is even among my colleagues and fellow biologists that they don't really think about this oh. it's like, well, never really thought about it that way boy are we doomed are you, are you <laughs> 415 parts per million carbon dioxide fires in australia um fires in scandinavia in 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 last summer and the summer before i mean this is you know, it's 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 not good. This is true. From that point of the day, it's not good. We, we're, we're doomed.
<laughs> it has always, I've noticed that there's always been a trend when something is occurring, there's a thought like, oh, we'll just pull back. I've never seen humanity or any organism pull back. There's usually something else that comes up. Like let's say the education system is not great. It's not like it's pulled back and adjusted back to a functional form. Usually something else will overtake it. And if there is room for that. So I, I agree with that. We don't usually have something that reigns in what is occurring. I've never seen that. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that, that um, we, I mean, there are some really interesting trends out there, right? So, so in many countries, people are eating less, less meat. That seems like a very useful thing to do for, for, for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. The problem is with population growth, continuing right. and even though the rates rates are slowing i mean we're still looking at united nations looking at uh, what about 10 million 10 billion people within within a few decades mm -hmm. things aren't going to get better on that score anytime soon population will decrease after that but that's some um, i i'd love to know where the good news is i mean i see it in the behavior of individuals thinking and especially among my students that think about this very, very ser seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they, they are changing their, their lifestyles in a way that they believe will help foster a be better future. So you see this at the level of individuals. And I think it's, th th that's beautiful. I think we see the, the best of humanity there. But overall, as a species, not so much. Mm -hmm. It's hard to counter that. I like that you did include a chapter about how we make things better, which we do have some ways we are looking at, but the larger trend seems to be a like an avalanche of sorts. So it makes sense the way you're describing yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I think we do. Humans have achieved extraordinary thing, things through through science, for example, and also artistically. Mm -hmm. um, one can make the argument, though, of course, that scientific advances are are part of the foundation for the decline and fall of of Homo sapiens. Right, that this is what's enabled us to increase in numbers. This was this is what's actually created the the carbon-based global economy. Mm -hmm. These are these are these are glorious intellectual achievements, but there's a there's a huge downside associated with them, at least in terms of of what the longevity of of what we'd like to think is intelligent life. Mm -hmm. Part of me almost thinks some of the people who originated the ideas did not intend for them to be, let's say, multiplied 100x in some category the way they were. They were just trying to combine features and, oh, we figured out this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can think about that. I mean, think about many of the, the great engineers of the um, 19th century and, 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 well, great engineers throughout history and these, these remarkable achievements and ways, that, ways in which... Um, and through their inventions, the, the, the way that they've improved the experience of being alive, the, the ability to, to travel at high speed, for example. Um, the trouble is that there is obviously a downside associated with that, which is that we've changed the chemistry of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. This is true. One thing I wanted to uh, come to a near close on is early on you were in England and now you're in the United States. Uh, is there any difference in the research capacity there and or here in your field? And do you have any scientists you liked in either region? 
I mean, there, there are there are just talking about research in in general. I suppose within my you know my 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 field of expertise, fungal biology, there are mm. challenges on both sides of the the Atlantic. Um, just in terms of acquiring funding, I mean, I can think about. Um, it's a longer topic of conversation, but if we think about the effects of, of Brexit, Britain's withdrawal, United Kingdom's withdrawal from the, the European Union, I mean, this, this is having, this, this will have profound effects upon uh, European collaborations, international collaborations, um, supported by, the, um, by uh, European funding. So, so that's a specific challenge there. Um, in this country, um, I think the probably the the primary problem that we face really is that we seem to be living in an age where um, there's less interest in science, less support for objective truth, and uh, so it's not an exaggeration to say that science is under attack in this this country. Mm. We've still got a great deal of federal funding for research in this country, although it's increasingly difficult to compete for that but but i think it's uh i i see that social challenge maybe being more more important the way that as a society you know with so much powerful science produced by american scientists over such a long period of time you know world leaders and that the fact that we might be ceding control of that is is um unfortunate mm -hmm. right and then lastly are there any uh specific uh scientists or one that you have looked up to over time or that you like working with in some form that comes to mind no only myself oh. <laughs> <laughs> i got no time for for any, anybody else no i mean i've, I've had it's i've <laughs> been my great fortune to to have worked with some some really interesting scientists, I actually spent um, I spent part of, of January. I visited um, one of my mentors, a man called um, Frank Harold. He's a retired biochemist. He lives in a um, retirement uh, assisted living facility in 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 Seattle now, and he's actually become very very interested over the years in the origin of life, the the, the generation of the first first cell. So that was absolutely fascinating to interact with, with him as I did just a few weeks ago. And I find that glorious that, um, I hope he won't, I won't mind me mentioning this. Um, Frank's uh, an, an older man now, let's say, since he was my postdoc advisor in the, in the 1980s, he would have to be. But I mean, he still has that joy of discovery and he still has that, that, that passion for science and reading the work of other scientists. And, I can't think of many professions where, where people, if they, if they live very privileged lives such that they get to engage in, in research, scientific research, but, but transmitting, transferring that, that love of their, 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 their vocation throughout their lives. I mean, I, I don't, I, I doubt, I don't know many lawyers very well, but are there many in the legal profession that would say in there that are still poring over, over legal, um, tracks in in their 90s i mean may, maybe there are i suspect there are some some legal scholars that do this but i see mm. that in scientists and i think that's the best of it when you see somebody like me i suppose getting hooked on on science as as a child and then actually trend transferring that 
love of discovery and, and love of learning throughout their lives. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do like that feature. I would like to say I've been glad to have you on this episode number 248 of the Armin Show. A lot of information it tells us about people, where we might be going, and how it connects to things that are much smaller than what we normally look at, like mushrooms or sponges or microbes, which is wonderful. Glad to have you on. Well, it's my pleasure talking with you. Very interesting conversation we've had, I think. I would agree with that. And we are out.